لكل شيء إدامة ما نقصان فلا يغر بطيب العيش إنسان بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صلي وسلم على نبينا محمد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته and where to go, Sadman? And welcome <laughs> to the Caravan Sarai. My name so it's is so Jamal. it's so instinct to not like reply yeah. to that. No, no, you're good, man. And uh, welcome to the Caravan Sarai. My name is Bilal, and I am one third of your hosting trio, joined by brothers Umar and Sadman. And joining us today is Ustaz uh, Faraz Malik, and he is here to talk about the life of a student of Arabic. And some of the questions we uh, are hoping to answer today are, but are not limited to. How important is Arabic literacy for the average Western Muslim? How should a Muslim go about studying Arabic? And is the lack of Arabic literacy a reason for the current state of the Ummah? And now I will hand things over to Sadman to give a brief bio about our guest. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalam ala rasulillah. Jazakallah khair for joining us tonight. Uh, just a short bio on our guest tonight. Ustad Faraz Malik graduated from Ohio State University and continued his studies abroad in Amman, Jordan, where he taught as an Arabic instructor for Qasid Arabic Institute and obtained diplomas in traditional Islamic studies. Afterwards, he graduated with a master's in Islamic studies from Hartford Seminary, where he is currently publishing his master's thesis. He currently resides in Dallas, Texas, where he is enrolled at Qalam Seminary, completing the Alamiya program. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, he has about a year and a half left in that. So Jazakallah Khair for joining us tonight, and uh, I'll pass on to Sheikh Omar to start us off tonight. Jazakallah Khair, our brother Faraz, for joining us today. Um, I was hoping we could kick off the questions with just um, you telling us what made you want to study, study Arabic and uh, a bit about your background and experience with uh, studying Arabic, inshallah. Yeah, so alhamdulillah, salatu ala rasulullah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. So I definitely um, appreciate you having me on here. You know, um, my story isn't really something uh, unique or, um, you know, amazing or spectacular. I think rather it kind of is along the lines of everyday people, you know, um, they go, they're raised in a society in which they are trying to balance multiple cultures and identities. So my family... They migrated from Pakistan um, when I was about a year old. And so, you know, growing up for the first 18 or so years, going through the public public schooling system uh, in the U.S., um, one of the things that I had to balance was my Pakistani identity with my American identity. And Islam had not yet um, played a large role in my life at the time. But with Pakistani culture... Um, there were remnants, I would say, of Islam, uh, sometimes uh, misconstrued as religion when it was actually culture and vice versa. Um, and so, you know, as you get older, you get more curious. Um, I would say, you know, right before I went to university, my um, father passed away. It's about two weeks right before I was supposed to go to Ohio State. And, uh, rahimullah, and um, one of the things is that it was um, quite a shock, you know. It wasn't that one day I woke up and I said, I'm going to be a good Muslim. I'm going to follow the deen. I'm going to do these type of things. It was not like that. It was more in the matter of tadarujat and more a matter of just like gradually uh, increasing. But what it had done for me was um, plant the seed uh, in, my, in my head and in my heart just uh, becoming more curious about what the purpose of my life was. Because once you see someone you love, and then the next day you are washing their body and burying them, uh, it becomes a very uh, real thing that life gradually. And so that fragility of life, I think, is what resonated with me, which is that I could be that person tomorrow. I could be that person in a week. What I have to figure some things out. The thing was is that because I had already spent so much time trying to get a university, I just went ahead. I went to Ohio State, and I would say I was kind of in a um, like uh, in the embryonic stage of my Islam, where I was in a university. And the good thing about university is that 
it's a place where you can explore your identity. Um, and I definitely did that in a lot of ways. And uh, towards the end of my uh, college, you know, uh, I think it was like my junior year, I think, was when I joined MSA. And that's when I started becoming um, more of a Muslim in terms of my identity. And then that happened for two years. And then at the end of that journey, I applied to go into my, my master's for Hartford Seminary um, right away. So I didn't know anything. I didn't know Arabic. I didn't like memorize much Quran. I didn't do anything. I applied anyways because I didn't know what else to do in order to understand my religion. Um, and, and at that time, Ohio didn't have many resources. So I got in, you know, they'll take pretty much, I mean, no offense to them, but like it, it, they, they don't really care much about traditional studies, how much background you have. As long as you had your bachelor's, then you could go take the program. But once I entered the program, um, I realized that that wasn't exactly what I was looking for. It provided a lot of benefits, but it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. So I did one year of uh, courses there. So I pretty much finished about half or close to half of all the courses for the master's program. And then I had them eat the gaff that year, that Ramadan, with um, a friend of mine. Some of you may know him, Muzammil. So we did it the gaff together with a bunch of other people. Um, and it was, to be honest, I think the, the turning point in my religious studies. Um, Muzammil and I were both starting out. He's younger than me. We both started out, you know, wanting to learn Arabic. And so we both made the Nia in Itigaf to go to Egypt to study Arabic. And we would go to the same institute. But his visa um, got rejected and mine got accepted. And this was during the Thora, the revolution at the time. So he actually went and, he went and studied uh, in the U.S. and I went to Egypt. Well, when I got to Egypt, I didn't know a lick of Arabic. And so... Um, and I, I landed right around Eid time. So everything was like, everything was closed and I didn't have any money. So I ended up like only eating chips for like the, uh, for 10 days. And then that's when uh, Morsi got out. That's when Morsi was uh, taken away. And I was in Egypt at the time. And so my, uh, my <laughs> beginning experience in studying Arabic was Egypt going through a, a revolution. It was, Brutal. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was definitely something that I would say is, uh, it was interesting. And my mom was extremely worried and rightfully so, you know, the country is in trouble. And so, um, I had another friend who actually had studied at Fawcett in Jordan. And so I had a difficult decision to make. Should I go back to the U S and study Arabic there, or should I go and try to explore other middle Eastern countries? And so I chose the latter and I chose to go to Fawcett. What was interesting is during that year, a lot of students who were studying in Egypt went to Jordan. Because at that time, Syria was going through the civil war. You couldn't get in Saudi Arabia. You don't go to Lebanon to study Arabic. You, you don't go to Palestine because of, unfortunately, what's happening there. Um, you don't go to Oman. You don't go to any of the Gulf countries either. Um, and Turkey was still developing at that time. Right? It wasn't where it is now. I mean, mm -hmm. if, yeah. if, if someone's going to go study, I would tell them to go to Turkey. But Turkey wasn't where it was now. Um, mm -hmm. And so Jordan was the place to go because it was the safest country where people still spoke something close to Fusha. And Asid was a recognized institute uh, around the world. So I went there and, uh, you know, I memorized one phrase to the taxi driver, Ain al Fundak. <laughs> nearest hotel so i got to the nearest hotel memorized that one phrase got there and um i just went online found some um guy who trained uh who is uh, trained in the u.s but lived in jordan so he knew english i got an apartment he obviously overcharged me but i didn't know any better and um i'm all alone and for a year, about 15 months, all I do is study. Like nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows where I am. All I like six, seven hours a day is study Arabic. And it was nice. It was nice because uh, it was rigorous. And I definitely like pushed myself in every possible way. Um, and it, it was um, a really beautiful experience. 
Um, and so Alhamdulillah, you know, I wasn't the sharpest. Um, I just was a hard worker and that was enough. Uh, not to necessarily be like the top, but to be somewhere like recognizable. And so, you know, Alhamdulillah's mercy, what had happened was I had made some good friends who were employees at Qasid and they had, uh, they gave me a shot uh, to be an employee. So I, for six months, I ended up uh, just doing their online program. I made their curriculum. I did all the online teaching. And then one of the teachers uh, went back to the United States or he left. And then I started, I took over the position of teaching uh, Arabic there, me and another Ustad. And then I ended up teaching there for about uh, three, three and a half, four years until um, I came back to the United States. During that time, I finished my master's online. So that's when I finished my thesis. Yeah, Yaqeen's bio, that was when I first got into Yaqeen. So I was still working on it then. But uh, I finished it uh, overseas. Uh, my professor was Dr. Yahya Michaud, and he gave me a hard time with that translation. Um, and I came back. And then one of the things that I really wanted to do once I got my Arabic down was I wanted to learn uh, Islamic studies. So I, tr I tried really hard to study Islamic studies also alongside my uh, Arabic teaching. And I did. I had a lot of teachers um, with Hanafi fiqh, with Tajweed, with like anything I could find, I would, I would take it. But the problem was is that Jordan, uh, it's a poor country. And a lot of the shiuch there are really struggling. And so you don't have institutions that are fully developed. You have a bunch of random shiuch who are just trying to make like a buck to try to survive. And you try to help them out. But it's just a lot of dysfunction in terms of the studies um, that I was going through. Maybe someone else found something better. But what I tried looking for, I couldn't find consistency. And that to me was the most important thing. Um, I learned a lot, got some ijazat, but I still felt like I was missing a structure. Um, and so that's when I decided to uh, interview around the world. So I just interviewed at Qatar. I called Malaysia up. I, call, uh, I called, you know, everybody in the U.S. I went to Zaytuna. I went to Dar al-Qasim. I went to Qalam. I went, I mean, I can't, I just called everybody around the world. And I just asked them what their curriculum was like. And then I would take it to some shoe from like, what do you think of their curriculum? Like, and I just kept showing it, showing it, showing it. And I did. So I definitely did my fair due in terms of what I wanted. And for me, my main goal was I just wanted to get the basics down. Like I was really, um, I had no idea how far Islamic studies could go. I just wanted to learn my fiqh, my aqidah, you know, the basic things so I can just move on and just enjoy the process. I never had a goal. I just wanted to learn. Um, and I ended up choosing Qalam for many reasons. And, uh, Alhamdulillah, you know, my wife and I were back now in Ohio where my family is. And now I teach, uh, I write some articles and I'm studying. So I'm really, uh, blessed. And I, you know, I thank Allah SWT every day for allowing me to go on this journey. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. Stas Faraz, just, um, I was just wondering what sort of drove you and gave you that motivation, especially that time in, in Jordan, to do those six, seven hours of study, study a day. I mean, I'm sure that's something a lot of people would like to do, but they just don't have that drive and motivation. And yeah. also, if I, if I could tag on a follow-up question to that, would you recommend that kind of rigorous uh, daily schedule for 15 months for everyone? Or is that just kind of, it, it fitted you well? So like when I entered Qasid, uh, I was, um, Bilal, you're probably aware of this, but Qasid has two tracks. They have a modern standard, they have a classical track. Mm -hmm. so, so I completed both. I did both. Um, I, so it was one year uh, of the classical, which I finished. And then while I was teaching, I also finished the modern standard. I did both of them. Oh, wow. and, and one of the things, you know, many people don't even finish a whole classical program to begin with. It's not like a huge mm -hmm. number. Like maybe that's true. Yeah, that's like very maybe, true. Maybe only ten percent, max, like around there. Um, and even if they finish, many of them will just like just barely get through, and they're like they're done with Jordan because Jordan just takes a toll on you mentally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I I'll, I'll second that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it yeah. takes a toll. Like you being there, it's just the same routine. So it wasn't so much about the studies. It's like, can you handle um, the Middle East, a third world country? 
because we romanticize it. But there's a lot of issues there. I mean, the, the things that we take for granted in first world countries, health, food, just socializing with your friends, those type of things weren't necessarily really developed. Well, form, and so, forming lines. I've noticed that forming lines isn't something that happens in the Muslim world. Except <laughs> the people that show up yeah. to one location, force themselves in the door. Sorry, I cut you well, off. Yeah, no. So, so what, what I recommend it, well, based upon the stats that I saw, um, I don't think most people have that drive. I mean, now, well, it's not that they don't have a drive to learn Islamic studies. I just don't think it's one of two options. Either they don't understand what the journey is like, um, and, and they've already come to a conclusion of what studying Arabic is going to be like. Or number two is that, unfortunately, like I've seen it many times, have a drive, but because, you know, um, external factors, they couldn't complete it. Uh, family, they had to go back, they had to make money. Like a lot of times that was the issue. So I was, you know, um, blessed that I had no real responsibilities at the time. And then secondly, um, you know, for some reason I had the drive. I think the drive was also me being a bit naive. I had zero expectations of what the journey was going to be like. I had zero. I just went in, I said, I'm this class in front of me, I'm going to do as well as I can. And with the next class, I'm still going to do as well as I can. And I still take classes on Arabic till today. So I just, I, I never see an end to it. The second I think I, I would ever say there's an end to it, that's when I would give up and I would stop. But I still study till today. I still have my class till today. And so um, I still, I don't even view myself as a teacher. I always tell the students I teach, I'm learning from you. You know, and when you ask me a question, I don't know, I'm still going to research it. It's that mentality, I think, is what drives people, is that you understand when you're going to be thought of that it's for life. But I think some people subconsciously think that it's only for a few years. Um, and I think that's really difficult to continuously maintain your niya and continuously say, I'm going to keep going no matter how old I am. Okay, man. Inshallah. Sorry, if I could backtrack just a little bit to hit on an important point here, I feel like would be relevant to Muslims in the West, but particularly, um, especially in the U.S., is you know, how inform how I guess impactful was the MSA in informing your Islam, and if you can kind of give some of the the pros to the MSA in helping you, because I know people tend to focus on the cons of the MSA, but I don't want to do that here. I want you just to give a little bit of you know uh, you know like advice, like how MSA helped you in particular. Yeah, MSA was huge. I found my wife through MSA. <laughs> so <laughs> I, mean, I, owe, I owe MSA quite a bit. <laughs> I'm yeah. still in touch with them. Um, but, um, you know, I think MSA, I would call it, would be the buffer or the first step towards a Muslim uh, taking on that journey to find their identity as a Muslim in, in whatever country they're in. Um, and so I think for me, that's what it was. I needed that first step to uh, feel like a Muslim, to act like a Muslim, and to find some identity as a Muslim. I, I don't think it takes anyone all the way. I don't think anyone ever argue that. But it's a really, I think, good place for people to explore the Muslim identity when they, you know, they're having trouble um, with that. So that's the pro. I think more anything else. Okay, so kind of like just social cohesion, you know, it, it, you know, this you're just gonna it'll help you uh, direct you a little bit, but don't expect kind of too much from it, type of thing. Yeah, I mean, just be no expectations. I just think you're trying to find familiarity, uh, okay. you know, and so, um, I, you know, I was lost in 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 college, and and if you are stuck with the wrong crowd, in in university. I mean, it can really take you the wrong way. And yeah, so I, very I, true. I, exactly. MSA, MSA prevented that. You know, sometimes we can say, what did MSA do for you? Well, you know, they prevented from a lot of bad people in my life. Um, and and I, I, that kind of environment can get really, really volatile. And so it's really important, I think, that, you know, people, there's some boundaries, some moral boundaries that we don't do these things, you know. And so MSA, I think, was a really good preventer of evil yeah, yeah i just had one just one quick thing before we move on um when you were in jordan from what i've heard from below um Qasid's pretty expensive so 
Um, how were you able to kind of you know balance that while being a student? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. If it isn't expensive, but from what I've heard, it is. Oh, it's extremely expensive. Yeah, uh, and and Jordan is also very expensive to live in. Um, so you know, I'm, I I was really blessed to have a family to support me. Uh, so that that's one thing. You know, one time one of the uh, teachers at Qasid told me they said, "Don't take that financing for uh, granted. You know, use that to learn more." Mm-hmm. And I think you know yeah. I, I was um, blessed, and I know not everyone is had that opportunity. Um, and I think you know having a drive to study Islam is not enough. You have to have money in the finances as well. Um, and it's an expensive journey, actually. Um, a very expensive journey. How do you balance it? I mean, so some of the students, I think, were really smart in that they they leverage their university to uh, pay for everything. So I think you know Muslims need to be a little smarter now. So what what they what they did was is that the university would pay for you know their ticket and their and their classes, and then they would use that time to study whatever they wanted to study and still like pass all their tests and everything because they had to through the university. So I, I've seen that you know those type of students were always the most successful. They knew how to leverage uh, the the institutions around them. And I don't. So, you know, I feel like, sorry to add to that, you know, a little bit of street savviness goes a long way in the Muslim world. You know, like as you mentioned earlier, it's it's underdeveloped. And I feel like if you're like, you know, quick on the trigger, you, you can make it far. So I'm not surprised those students did well. Yeah, like like some of my students, they were living in the best apartments because their university was paying for everything. And they had a, they, they lived inside of a research building with all, of, all the books that they, they could ever have. I mean, it, it, it was amazing. And so I, I just think Muslim, sometimes like, we I, like we romanticize, like I say, the the adventure or the the, the uh, talab of right. Middle East, and I just think that we need to be a little smarter and we need to use the resources around us. Like for example, I'm not sure how many people use ISF, the Islamic uh, fa- this, the scholarship fund, um, to you know pay for stuff, or you know, I just feel like that's something that's uh, really missing nowadays. How do you balance it? I mean, to be honest, I would wait and save money to get there. I, I would hold out and wait versus trying to go through all these other different programs and hopefully getting there. That's just right. my opinion. Yeah, no. I think, I think that's a big struggle people have with going overseas is uh, finances. It's, uh, it's, not an easy, it's not an easy thing to balance. But, you know, like, I'm not sure if I would recommend people going to the Middle East right now for um, many reasons. I, like I mentioned earlier, I think if you want to go somewhere, Turkey is the place to go nowadays. Uh, and, and their their Arabic programs are very strong, extremely strong. And I they provide a lot of financial, um, you know, help. So Yeah, they give out scholarships to international students. Yeah, yeah, they have quite a robust scholarship fund. I think we're all familiar with it from Malaysia, you know, right? Yeah. So, but this kind of actually uh, leads into a, a kind of a, another question that we have. So you said maybe you wouldn't recommend going to the Middle East right now. So how important is Arabic immersion to the study uh, of the language uh, kind of itself? Extremely. It's essential. Um, and the reason why I say that is because... Um, Arabic isn't just a language; it's a different way of thinking, and and that's very true. Yeah, and that's why reading the Quran in Arabic is such a profound experience because you are reanalyzing information in a different way. English only allows you to think in certain ways; it, it's limited in in expressing and thinking in certain ways. For example, if someone speaks in Urdu, they can. Urdu is a more romantic language. You can express more things. Is in, it? <laughs> or, 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 I should say, an emotional, expressive language. Definitely. Sorry, in, I was in, joking. Yeah. Yeah. Me. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, um, and I and I tell you know the people that I always see like that's why um, you have to first readjust your intentions when learning Arabic. That if you think you're just going to memorize vocabulary. And learn a bit of grammar. 
and you're, you're going to get it like you have learned um, any science, mathematics, whatever it may be, you're in for a long ride. But if you come in with the intention that this is going to change how I think, Mathalan, for example, you know, when you say the Habazaydun, you say, uh, it, if you think about it in terms of um, the order of words, you're first thinking in your mind of the action, then the subject, or then the doer. Mm. But in English, Zaid went. So you have to, and when you translate from Arabic to English, you have to predict a lot of things. Or if you're reading Arab in, in un, an unvowed text, you have to predict what, where the fa'al is, where the doer is, or where other things are in the sentence before it comes. It, 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 it goes into your mind and it forces you to think in a way which English is not. So right. why am I saying immersion is so important? It's so important because you have to be in a state of mind for as long as possible for you to understand what it means to think in that language. Because the second you leave that language and start talking to someone in English or do something in English, what happens is then you go back to that way of thinking also, not just using the language. And the hard part is thinking in Arabic for a long period of time. That's why I believe it's a more difficult language, not impossible, uh, and difficult meaning not difficult that it's not possible, but difficult that it takes time. I just don't mm-hmm. think people are willing to spend the time. Because when I first went to the Arabic, I actually had in my mind, one year, I'll be here. But it took me four years to reach Superior and Actville. Four years, and I barely got to that level. I probably, you know, regressed a bit also. But it just, the amount of work it takes for you to change the way you think is mm-hmm. uh, just one little thing I wanted to say um, with going to Turkey and places where it's not uh, where Arabic isn't the core language there do you still receive this uh, immersion I'm talking for a little bit from experience because in Malaysia when when I went to study Arabic there um, except in the classrooms you don't get much of that Arabic so what would you say about that yeah I mean I, I don't know much about like Everything I know from Turkey is from hearsay and from people who are studying there at the moment. So I'm not sure exactly um, how what the immersion is in, in, in those environments. It could be that the madrasa creates that environment really well. Um, obviously, there's always going to be the aspect of when you go out into the street, you have to speak their language. So I do think it's still missing it a bit. I've learned a lot of things just trying to get in a taxi and go to like a, a restaurant. Like I've learned a lot of Arabic in, in, in those experiences. So I still think um, that it's really necessary in that sense. That's the one thing that Middle East still offers, which no other countries offer. Um, that's the one thing. So it depends where you are in your journey of uh, studying Arabic. But if you're far enough, then uh, I would highly recommend. Uh, the mm-hmm. Yeah, and so to kind of follow up on that, so at, at what point should a student of Arabic actually make the journey overseas or should you know should they start a little bit you know wherever they are in their in their current location and then go overseas so they have kind of some understanding or should they just you know go for broke and just you know go over there right at the beginning yeah that's a good question I, I've been thinking about that question you know even till now I mean it depends for person right it depends on their personality like for my personality I wanted to go all out like I would go to Mauritania. I would go to Yemen. I don't care. I don't care if I get sick. But 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 the thing is also when you actually get sick, it's really bad because I got Jordan <laughs> and I was there for two weeks. I was in the hospital for two weeks actually, it's and I was I got so yeah. sick, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I had to come back because I got so sick and it took me a while to recover. So it it's easy to say. Thank God I got sick towards the later end of my journey latter end of my journey versus in the beginning because that would have been but i caught the flu like every year i went to the er like seven times um so it's something that um if you have the personality where you're like zero to hundred go for it i don't think most people are like that Um, and and health wise it makes sense to be a little more cautious so in that sense i would recommend people to first study uh, in the states because you have a lot of good programs in the states now or anywhere with covid you can pretty much study anywhere online now so um, i think there are a lot of good programs out there that you can learn from 
The most important thing, though, is I would recommend sticking with one program. Don't jump around. Right. Most thing you could do. I think uh, we can jump to one of the questions: is uh, what What do you think is the most practical way for a Western Muslim to start their study of the Arabic language? Um, this could also be uh, uh, related to like what programs they can take, both online and in person. And what would you recommend? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean that, that, that's what I do like on a daily basis. I I just write and teach Arabic. Um, I spend thirty-four hours a day doing that. Um, but but that aside, I, I mean, there's so many programs that you can look online. I mean, it's it's amazing. Like everybody's teaching Arabic. The one thing in terms of the curriculum, if I was going to suggest someone about the curriculum, two main curriculums that people have. Either it's the more, like you mentioned, immersive type of a curriculum where you just throw in vocabulary, you try to get them running as fast as possible, have grammar to make them understand things, move on. Um, that's one approach, and some people learn that way. My approach has always been that I, I want to teach all the grammar first, everything. So, like, we just finished um, uh, six months worth of grammar with the students, and now we're studying Qasas Nabi chapter one, like the very beginning, like Kan Ibrahimu, you know, and so they have covered everything. So they have a picture, a, a blueprint of the language, and they know how to use it. They know the terminologies. I, I, I can just say, where's the Ism Kana? Where's the Khabar Kana? Limada Hada Marfu? Why is this in Say Rafa? And there's answering left and right. Okay, so uh, you, we have your point is very uh, good because we had a question here, and it, and and it says when learning Arabic, most like most people or teachers, they tend to emphasize the importance of grammar in the study of Arabic. Um, however, they neglect the study of vocabulary. Clearly, I think you disagree with this, right? So uh, you're saying it's better to just do grammar all the way first and then focus on vocabulary or or the 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 rest of the language well it, it depends you know per student i mean the student knows themselves best as well but the reason why i'm saying that is because um uh, it, it goes back to my theory about learning arabic is changing the way you think and so, right. and so what right. i'm trying to do is i'm trying to first lay out to them how this language is making you think in a different way uh, mm-hmm. and saying them the first think in a different way before i give them the tools to use uh, to drive the car, right? I first show them, this is what an engine is. This is what a wheel is. You know, I show them everything about it because they've never seen a car in their life before. Mm-hmm. This is the first time ever seeing it, right? And and for me, that proved huge, uh, huge, I, I reaped a lot of benefits that way. But the only caveat to that is it's a longer journey. Right. It's, it's a longer journey. But the people who end up sticking with it become a lot stronger. So, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to like, I'm not going to name any institutes, but there are many well-known institutes who would come to me or or, Qasid, or even now and they say, I finished this program, I finished that program. And then mm-hmm. I compare them to the students that we have and it's there's too many holes, too many gaps. And we can't moving at a fast pace because they're still thinking about what the grammar is and people think of grammar as like, and this is why I really want to say people think grammar as just like, Oh, it's just the way you combine words and form sentences. Again, that's how they think of it. The way I think of grammar is I'm shedding light on how Arabic will make you think differently. This is what grammar is to me. And that's why I think it's so important. That's really interesting. So as far as how you say it makes you think differently. Um, would you know of any practical examples of, of how um, that type of thinking sort of opens your mind in any way? Yeah, the, the first is, like I mentioned, is, is the um, idea of um, uh, you, you have to uh, predict and get used to reading sentences at a time uh, okay, uh, yep, yep. Versus, versus reading words at a time. So, for example, Zaid went to the hospital and then he ate some food. But what might happen is Zaid, the word Zaid might be the last word in the Arabic sentence. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're seeing all these things and you don't know who's doing it and then Zaid. Why that's mm-hmm. important is because you are now not focusing on the meaning coming alongside the word, but the meaning coming alongside a sentence. 
And on top of that, that's one aspect. The other aspect is Arab, which is very unique to Aramaic languages, Hebrew, Old Hebrew and Arabic, because English doesn't have that. What makes Arabic very unique is the fact that it has its endings change, which provides uh, multiple meanings. So it, you see this in Tafasir, you see this in Ahadith, there's Ikhtilafat on uh, is this is this is this uh is this say nathab limada and if that's the case the meaning changes. So what Arabic also does beautifully is that within one word or one sentence it provides multiple meanings. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something that's even deeper on, on that level as well. So you have to not only be able to predict the sentence, but then also understand all the possible meanings. Like t- today, we just went over the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam talking about um, uh, slaughtering the biha, and the biha is that the cat, the ummi, the katul janin or bilax, that the slaughtering of a cow um, or an animal. What happens if the fetus, if you find there's a fetus in there, can you eat the fetus or not? Was the slaughtering for the um, the the animal you slaughter does that also count towards the fetus, meaning that it's halal to eat? So the jumhur, the majority say yes, it is. But what Abu Hanifa rahimah says no, and he understands this to be the katul ummi ka, and he he adds a ka half jar ka tashbih here, and it's hidden, and he's saying you see this in the Quran all the time, and he's saying no, the slaughtering the animal is should be also the way you slaughter the. Uh, the fetus as well. I Meaning you slaughter the fetus as well before you can eat it. Uh, which is beautiful because, again, only four words can give multiple meanings. That is something which you don't see in many other languages. Mm-hmm. SubhanAllah. It's, it's incredible. And I, and I can imagine that sort of way of seeing um, would open up into how you see the world as well and open up your creativity and um, open up avenues of understanding and wisdom just from understanding the Arabic language to that to that level. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Inshallah. Uh, you want to continue, Bilal? Yeah, I was going to ju- kind of jump back to one of our earlier questions, but I feel like Faraz yep. kind of touched on it because he mentioned, um, well, I'll, I'll just ask the question anyway, but um, would you, in, in the beginning of, of a stu- uh, uh, the student, uh, uh, his studies, when he's studying Arabic, um, how much Arabic do you think they should know before they jump kind of into studying the Islamic sciences? I know you touched on this in your personal story a bit, but if you could, you know, kind of give some advice. Yeah. I mean, you know, th- there is there is a story of Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah where he spent, you know, close to a decade in the Bedouin desert before he came back and, you know, started, uh, you know, going to Islamic sciences. So there is that, that those evidences uh, where uh, the uh, great ulama uh, in history uh, what they did was that they focused on Arabic for years, and they always continue to study it. it it's a, it's a it's a medium to understand the Arabic language to understand Islam through. With that being said, I don't necessarily think there is a set amount. I think um, you should have a teacher, and the teacher should tell you when it's ready, because Islamic studies is not only uh, a based upon the prerequisite of knowing Arabic, but it's also based upon the prerequisite of you having a clean heart. And very very true. And, and someone who knows a lot of Arabic, but they're going to misuse Islam, should not study Islamic sciences. And you have that happen many times. Our teachers many times do not graduate as student, not because they weren't intelligent, but because they did not see that they had pure intention based upon their actions. Allahu alam was in someone's heart, but based upon their actions, they conclude that this was not going to be the right field for them. Right. So um, and, and, and that's why I think having a teacher is so important uh, for that um, permission. Um, so that's my uh, take on it. But if you have a teacher's permission, then usually, you know, there's two methods. Either you finish all of Arabic, then you go into Islamic studies, or either you do it alongside. Uh, you have to get your farda'ain down. You have to know your farda'ain. So, so if you're saying Islamic studies means knowing your farda'ain, your farda'ain has to come first, actually, before even Arabic. So um, you have to know how to pray. You have to know how to fast. You have to know how to, you know, do everything that is according to uh, the Quran and Sunnah. But um, if someone is already beyond that and they're like talking about Talib al-ilm, I always think that you should go Arabic first, master it, then come to Islamic studies. Uh, Your Islamic studies will become so much more easier 
just like just as advice from someone who's done it uh, my life has become extremely easy in terms of studying islamic studies versus other students who have to learn arabic and also learn the the content as well it's a lot to do at once noted i think that's pretty solid advice i like the part where you talked about uh purification you know i feel like especially a lot of Western students, you know, like I said, they get caught up in the kind of the romantic notion of going overseas and just learning the material, but they kind of lose sight of what they're learning it for. And ultimately it's about your own purification at the end of the day. So I like what you said there. That's pretty solid. And uh, Ustaz Faraz, you mentioned earlier about your motivation that you had um, to study Arabic. Um, I guess you were sort of hinting at it's sort of something innate in a person. And is that what you were referring to? And it's hard for someone without that motivation to sort of um to get get that motivation uh, you know it, it's tough i mean you all also understand to some degree you know the, the struggles um you know what, what it means to study um islamic studies it's, it's not a it's not a easy path by any means mm. yeah um uh and you know my wife, you know, she, she's a doctor now, alhamdulillah. And, you know, the advice we give to other physicians is if you don't love it, don't go, don't go into it. And, um, you know, at a certain point, um, I, I, I honestly believe if that you're not completely like obsessed with it, like this is something you love to do. Um, you can do your, your massage to have programs. You can get enough knowledge that way. But uh, I think it'd be better better for a person to be a tajr saduq, right? As the Prophet said, tajr saduq ma'anabiyin, a trustworthy and fair uh, business person is amongst the, the prophets. I mean, mm-hmm. that's also a very noble path that you don't go into interest, you have halal risk, you take care of your family, you fulfill all the hukuk of people around you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think that's also very noble. And so uh, one shouldn't think that this is the only path towards um, becoming a great, uh, you know, Muslim. Um, mm. it, it path, and it, it does liberate you. Alim does liberate you, but it doesn't have to be in the traditional sense of becoming Taliban. You can be Taliban and still work from nine to five. Yeah. Um, I just think sometimes we limit that definition. Um, so is it innate? You know. Allah guides whomever He wills, right? So we ask Allah guidance, you know. Do you believe that there's a level of Arabic competence, uh, competency um, the average Western Muslim should have, though? Uh, no, no, because um, it's not for everybody, and not everybody's mind can obtain Arabic. I mean, mm. that's just reality. I mean, after teaching, you start realizing that this, you, you, you see a student, and I'm sure you have seen. This student in Arabic just do not mix. You're like, that's mm, not yeah. And that's okay because they have so many other strengths, which I don't have. Um, and so I don't think it's necessary. Now, should you get your tajweed down for uh, leading prayers? Yes. But do you have to know everything? I don't think so because sometimes I think it might demotivate a person too far where mm. they don't even want anything towards Islamic studies. And so my ultimate goal is to always make Arabic very uh inviting I, mm. i'll even sacrifice part of ilm to make it more inviting so that they have motivation to study on their own um mm. but i don't think there is Subhanallah. That, that's a very good point Ustaz. i mean some people could spend years trying to master arabic and not really get far but they could have spent that time in something that's comes more naturally to them and excelled at that in that same time frame so jazakallah yeah. Well, that, that kind of goes back to the point Faraz made earlier is that, you know, our definition of Talib al is very narrow. We think, you know, you have to be doing full-time, you know, Islamic studies 24 hours a day. But uh, you can be a Talib al uh, in a different way. You could you know, have your 9 to 5 and just do what little you can with the time that you have remaining. Cause, yeah, yeah, and the example I think that came to my mind was Khalid Walid. I mean, uh, great general... Memorize one like three surahs. That's true, yeah. I, I mean, it, no, one, no one's ever going to say Khalid Walid isn't a great Sahabi. Like, that, that's not going to come out of someone's mouth. But it doesn't take away from what he gave to towards Islam. So um, I really think there's this obsession with ilm. Ilm is meant to be liberating, 
but now there has become an obsession to learn just to learn. And it doesn't lead to amal, uh, salih. And that's why we ask Allah for al nafir, right? Mm-hmm. Beneficial knowledge, not just knowledge. Um, knowledge that will liberate us, knowledge that will get us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are many times where I say, I'm learning too fast. Like I'm saying that I'm, I'm just learning too quickly. My amal can't keep up with my ilm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's a sahaba, they memorize a verse at a time, implement it in another verse, in another verse. I mean, it was such a beautiful experience that they had. It was so much more than just learning things. It was learning for a purpose. And I think, you know, if someone's just learning Arabic just to learn it because someone said you should, and there's no purpose behind it, and you know this person is going to be struggling and wasting their years and money, I just, that's really hard for me to grasp. That's really hard for me to grasp. Mm. But there's kind of a, like a follow-up question there, but do you feel like there's a, a growing dichotomy kind of in the community now where there's like a sense of over-specialization? So for example, you have people that are just full-time or and then you have people on the other side, you know, white-collar, blue-collar workers who aren't interested at all kind of with what Islam has to offer. Because you mentioned the example of Khalid ibn Walid, you know, like, okay, yeah, he was not what we would call, you know, a full-time student of knowledge, but his basics were enough that mm. allowed him, you know, his sincerity and his basics and his religion were enough that allowed him to achieve such a status in his religion. But I feel like there's a, a dichotomy in the community to the point where the people that aren't studying don't even have the basics, so they can't even achieve that kind of level of success that he had just based off of uh, what little knowledge they should have and sincerity. Do you, do you see what I'm saying there? I see what you're saying, and, and yeah. I agree. You know, like, I think uh, people who are in, like, their 20s now and who want to try to learn, they can learn, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, sometimes they may have been raised in a society or in a community where they weren't taught Islam very well. This is why I strongly believe that we have to become really uh, smart in how we educate the young folk, meaning you invest your money into Islamic schools and you don't send your kids to these public schools. You send them to Islamic schools which have better education or you you work the system in your favor. Like one of the, I mean, maybe we can talk about some other time, but one of the things that we're trying to do at Arabic Daily is we're trying to be accredited so that People who want to take Arabic in high school can take our course and use it as credit for their high school. MashaAllah. Great initiative, man. That's a great initiative. Excellent. We're trying to infiltrate, infiltrate the system where when they come out of high school, they already know enough. That's how it was back then. They came, they already memorized all these mutun. They were already like what we call today scholars, these kids. And so I think that's where we have to start, which is that let's invest in the youth. Let's make sure that they, we have a system that when they come out of high school, they've already memorized certain ayat, certain uh, surahs. They already have their Arabic down. They already have their fiqh down. And then they can do whatever they want. And those who want to pursue it further, let them go pursue further. Um, but I just think that that's where my focus is right now, going to the younger ages. No, That's a very solid plan. But at least it, it seems to me that we're, we're still a while away kind of from having that, that infrastructure there where, you know, the youth get kind of the necessary instruction they need. So by the time they're 18, they can either choose to continue it more or just go off and do something else. Uh, right. And so I feel like because we're not there yet, we're going to lose a lot of people along the way, unfortunately. And also there's going to be a lot of aberration in religion because of it. You know, let's say someone comes into the religion a bit later in life and I'm not knocking on anyone for coming into religion at whatever age that's when they got Hidayah and we never say anything against it. But there are, again, pitfalls to that. They're, they're starting later. There isn't the necessary guidance. Maybe because they think they're older, they should kind of skip over a few things. And so that leads to kind of, from what I've seen in my own personal experience here in the U.S., severe aberration in thought, you know, and then you have to kind of contend with that in the community. Is that something you've seen or something you want to touch on? Or Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunate reality. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's what every mosque is trying to figure out. I mean, every time I work for a mosque, it's help these people, help these people, help these people. They're so lost. They have no idea how to approach them. And it's not easy. It's not easy at all. You know, it's it's still a mystery. Uh, it's still tough. Otherwise, you know, uh, if it wasn't tough, then it would have been dealt with. I, 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 I'm, I, I, I'm to the point 
where, you know, because it's so tough, that's why I know that if I put my energy towards the young, the youth, the younger kids, I can, um, it sounds really bad, but I can get a lot out of them. I can really help them a lot more than I can help these people. I still help them. But like, for example, what I try to do is I'm currently like the, the chaplain at University of Cincinnati. So what I'm trying to help them and give them a weekly halaqa, just become their CPR of Iman. Once a week, let me do CPR on you. You have your monitors, <laughs> you're back. I like, to I like that analogy. That's a good one. Yeah. So, so th- that's how I view it. I'm just an ambulance. I'm just trying to help them survive. But if I want to help people grow, if I see someone with potential, I might just take them and be like, I might push them towards studying Islam, but that's really rare. Many people don't want to. So it's, it's the youth where I feel like I can, uh, you know, make the biggest investment. So I don't know. I don't have an answer. And, and that's why it's tough. If you have an answer, I would love to hear. <laughs> that's why I asked the question because I was hoping I could get an answer to this million. It's a million dollar question. I mean, I feel like, it's, yeah. you know, every community suffers from what you've just, you know, described. So may Allah give us all hidayah. Okay. And uh, kind of on a lighter note, uh, this is a question I know Sadman had, and I'm sorry to kind of uh, jump uh, <laughs> jump tracks here, but there's always this this question, kind of among students students of knowledge, that should they marry an Arabic speaker in order to help facilitate their kind of Arabic learning? I mean, have you have you seen that? Have you seen students marry their native Arabic speakers and it's actually helped them? Have you seen it kind of to their detriment? Uh, what would you What would you say there? Yeah, do it. <laughs> there you go, Sadman. Really? You got you got the rubber stamp. Go. On the record, that was not my question. That's actually opposite of what I would I was expecting. No, do it. I mean, like I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, no one should take this advice and like not get counseling, you know, not get advice, not get like all those things that are common sense. I mean, unfortunately, common sense is rare, so I have to put that disclaimer. But um, if if you're serious, that is a very quick way, an effective way of learning Arabic. Uh, yeah, my, my cousin married, uh, you know, uh, a girl who's who's uh, um, speaks uh, native Arabic, and she writes poems. Uh, to her friends in Arabic, and he'll read them. And his Arabi is amazing. He's so fluent in. Subhanallah. He's he's he, he's like he's an Arab. He lives in uh, Dubai now, so he just helps them. Uh, so I mean, I really think if you have the opportunity, do it. But also at the same time, I thought your question was going to be more so along the lines of if you're Talib Island, should you get married? Um, well, you that, can answer that question too as well. So please, please go ahead. Um, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think you should wait. Really. Yeah. I mean, it depends. I mean, it depends what kind of talent you want to be and like how serious you are. But um, if you're willing to go all the way, uh, mm-hmm. then get married. Because one of the things about Islamic studies is that it's a world uh, wide uh, um, journey, meaning you need to travel to places, you need to meet ulama, you need to study with them, you need to be flexible, you need to have a, as little responsibilities as possible. Um, that's why uh, who is the um, the scholar? Subhanallah. There was a muhaddith we were just talking about. I can't remember if it was Muhammad ibn Rashid, but there's a muhaddith in the early years. Uh, he was a great muhaddith. I think he lived in like Kufa, and so uh, they asked him to study in Yemen, and then the Yemeni people said, "We got to keep him here." So they married he mar- they married him to one of their uh, women, and so he stayed there for the rest of his life. He died there. You know, so like. Uh, you know, it, it, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a sin of the Prophet Sallallahu It's not something that you delay too long either because of the fitness that's happening. But at the same time, there has to be this balance of when you get married, it's a responsibility. And you can't, you, it's worse to uh, infringe the rights of your spouse than to not be married. Right? So one has to be ready that when they get married, that now there's another person in their, li- in their uh, life which, who has hukuk, who has rights. You need to be very careful on not infringing on those rights. And if you're worried about that, then wait off, wait, hold on, finish your studies and get married. Because you don't want to, like, it, it's this false perception that it's the right thing to do when it may not be the right thing to do. Uh, it, it, just in summary, you know, 
It depends per person. Nice, nice diplomatic uh, summarization of your answer. Yeah, but uh, I actually kind of uh, agree with you there in that, um, you know, uh, I feel like most, from what I've seen anyway, uh, the majority of students of knowledge who got married, it actually didn't help them. But for, for the small percentage that uh, did it right, it, it, it projected, it, you know, like catapulted them way in front of everyone else because there's so much baraka involved mm-hmm. in marriage when mm-hmm. it's done right. Right, but I feel like a, a lot of people don't understand hukuk and the importance of, let's say, fulfilling hukuk over actually seeking uh, knowledge, right? And uh, so I feel like maybe people kind of suck the baraka out of their own marriage when they're studying, and then it also affects their their studying habits as well. So yeah, yeah, but that was actually my question. But it's a serious one because it, it does come up a lot. Students ask, you know, should I marry? You know, should I make? Should I get married at all? Should I study? Should I marry an Arabic speaker? That type of stuff. So it was on a. Come There's a. There, isn't there a slight problem with this? Like if you uh, look for women, they, re, they usually don't speak Fusha, right? So you're competing, or you're trying to find someone who can teach you Arabic. But uh, I think the, there's a problem with trying to find a woman that can actually teach you a Fusha. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, if you if if it's someone who's like from Morocco, then yeah, their amia is definitely going to be really um, out there. You know, hear that, friends. Omar? That, that's for you, Omar. <laughs> Omar uh, was in Morocco, so, yeah. <laughs> but that's if true. you're going to marry, like, a Shami girl or, like, someone who whose amia is somewhat similar to Fusa, it'll still give you a lot more benefit. There's this misperception um, that amia is, like, a different language. Um, when a lot of Amiya is a uh, different dialects of Fusha in reality. Like, for example, like um, in Arabic, when you say want to say in front of, you say Amam, like Amam al something like that. That's why we call the Imam. But uh, in, uh, in, in like Jordanian dialect, you say Guddam, 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 which is from Guddam, which is another Dharf, meaning in front of, but it's, it's used differently. So I think what it does actually is that it expands your Arabic a lot. And a lot of times there's this mis- misperception that people who know Amir don't know any Fusa. When in reality, I, I think they know actually quite a bit of Fusa. Um, mm. so there is that as well. One thing to add on to that while you're saying uh, the vocabulary aspect, uh, once you do have a handle on the like, grammar, how would you uh, go ahead and uh, really uh, you know, expand and, and gain and attain a, a strong vocabulary in the Arabic language, it depends what your goal is, um, because uh, because Arabic uh, the, the the goal will help you answer that question. Uh, if, okay. if your goal is to learn Al Jazeera, then you read Al Jazeera articles. If your goal is to become a diplomat, you do certain things. If your goal is to help refugee camps, then you want to go uh, learn Amia and learn specific words that way. So mm-hmm. it depends on your goal. But I'm assuming in that question, your goal is for like the Labal Ilm. Right, exactly. Uh, classical texts reading classical texts you know uh the best way to approach classical texts in my opinion um is that you have to have multiple steps um you don't want to ever put yourself in a position where the the goal is too difficult and you lose motivation and you get frustrated because then that will impede you from progressing at all you always want to be smart like i said i'm starting the podcast that this is a this is a way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it came to prohibiting uh, alcohol. It didn't happen all in one day. It happened through steps. So I think when it comes to steps, there's a couple of things. The first thing is is that when it comes to the goal of reading classical text, the, I think the really good place to start out is Qasas Nabi'in. I really think it's a brilliant book for multiple right. reasons. Number one, it starts off valid and it ends unvowed. So you progress in that way. Because if you want to read classical text, you have to go with unvowed text. The thing is, if you start with unvowed text right away without enough experience, you're going to be in trouble. The second thing is that the, the vocabulary words uh, increase slowly over time. So it gets it gets more difficult. So um, as long as you have a vocabulary list, which you can uh, you know write down or record or something, and you go through that being properly, you know everything what it's saying, you know grammar, that'll be a very, very, very good first step. But most, solid, people, solid most people don't finish all five books. They talk about it a lot, but not many people finish it. 
So what would be the next thing after you finish Qasas uh, Nabiyin? After you finish Qasas Nabiyin, I would suggest that you start um, reading some adab. Mm-hmm. Ad- adab is the way to go. Um, now, uh, be- the, the thing is, when you read classical texts, some classical texts are so um, limited in, in topic and scope that you're also limited in vocabulary words. You, you are only exposed to certain vocabulary words. You keep saying farb and sunnah and wajib, or you keep saying mustah, like, you know, you see the same words over and over again. But how mm. often do you see, like, canopy? How often do you see, like, uh, water drifting away? Or how often do you hear about uh, the pot boiling? You don't find those type of words in a classical text, like an Islamic text. So in order to expand one's vocabulary, adab is the way to go. There are many good um, adab works. One of the one of the things I read uh, was, um, I think it was called Arijal Fishams or something like this, mm-hmm. where it, uh, it's, um, it's about some Palestinian guys uh, going through the desert and trying to survive. And it was a really beautiful book. I thought the vocabulary words were... Um, were, were within reach as well for an intermediate student. Awesome. And just adab is uh, literature, isn't it, Ustaz? Just for yes, anyone yeah. Yeah, understanding yeah. it. Jazakallah khair. Yeah. So after this uh, this step, you could go into more um, heavy Islamic uh, books or would you still recommend other steps before you jump into something more serious? Um, you know, it depends. Like... Um... If you're going to read like Ihan uh, al by Imam Ghazali, you have to be really uh, knowledgeable in terms of Sufi terminology. You know, he'll, right. he'll, he'll use words which you find in Hans Ware which don't make any sense. Uh, so there's that. Um, you, so terminology is the biggest thing. Ibn Taymiyyah says, and I think even like, um, what's his name? Um, the philosopher. I'm forgetting now. Aristotle, yeah. Aristotle said, like, the beginning of wisdom is defining terms. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I think whenever you go into a book, you have to realize what book you're reading. If I'm reading a Majmur Fatawa by Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimullah, you know, I have to know that he's using technical terms from Usul al-Fiqh, which, then, which means, you know, before I go into that book, I have to really know Usul al-Fiqh. So when it comes to Islamic texts, um, I really think it's all about finding a teacher first and foremost, where you learn the basics. And that's why um, if, if one wants to read it, they can read it. But if one is serious, then they eventually need to find a teacher to help guide them. I'm, I'm sure, Ustaz, you could agree that learning Arabic, though, does um, increase one's iman. Um, what would be the options, though, to someone who can't learn Arabic? Uh, to, um, to increase their iman, yeah. As-Sawmul Jannah, fasting is a shield. Wasadaqah. <laughs> giving charity, you know, um, th- this is the advice of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I mean, you know, mm. these are things that anybody can do. So, you yeah. know, you, you're fasting on Mondays and Thursdays, you're giving sadaqah, you are uh, doing your tasbihat, you're doing your dhikr constantly. Uh, you are uh, making sure that, you know, uh, you, you, you raise to, to do good deeds. Um, uh, f- finding that person you compete with. Uh, Umar had Abu Bakr. They would always compete. Um, and, and that's something that, I, that's what I suggest. If you want to increase your iman, you don't have to have Arabic to increase your iman. Iman yeah. will help, iman, uh, sorry, Arabic will help um, cleanse the lens by which you see Islam. Right? Interesting. Like, it, it will clarify that. It'll open books up for you. It will uh, open, uh, you know, YouTube lectures for you, which you can receive and from, which you couldn't before. There are many things, because uh, once you read a book in English, you are at the mercy of the translator, their mistakes and their intentions. You're at the mercy of what they're translating. And so it, so you want to read Tafsir and you go to study the Quran, right? I mean, it's a, it's a great book, has some things in it. You're at the mercy of their ideology. For example, so one of the things that Arabic does is that it prevents a monopolization of ilm. It prevents that, and I think that's an interesting point because everybody in the world speaks about Islam through the medium of Arabic. Everybody, even in the West, people who are serious, they'll still speak in Arabic or write in Arabic or rebuke in Arabic, or rebuke in, uh, sorry rebuttal in Arabic, 
And so I think that that it doesn't necessarily increase the amount, but it helps, uh, you know, um, purify the iron, purify the jewel, you know, put pressure on the jewel so it becomes purified. I think that's what it's meant for. Mm. But, you know, I'm sure there are many different theories as well. That's just one thought that came to mind. Yeah, and I think that's about all we had, guys. Any any last questions there? Um, Maybe just Ustad could tell us what he's working on now and maybe where people could find out more information about his work. Oh, yeah. So in the next, uh, hopefully, week, I've been a little lazy, um, I'm, I'm re- releasing an article for Yaqeen on the Islamic calendar um, and um, how we have been colonized through the calendar and we need to reclaim our Islamic identity by reclaiming the Islamic calendar. Mm-hmm. Just, sounds that's interesting, man. Yeah, it is actually a very interesting topic. Yeah. How important is the Islamic calendar to Muslims? Um, We'll have to read the paper, I think. Probably a very long-winded answer. So we'll have to save that one. Okay, time. But, uh, but Ustaz Faraz, if, if you could uh, talk about your website briefly, just so yeah. uh, people know, uh, that's kind of, I think it's like your main project, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so it's, uh, uh, it's learnarabicdaily.com. Um, pretty much, uh, it's just um, uh, an institute, I guess you can call it, um, with just me. And I just, what I do is I just teach people Arabic on Zoom. Uh, I have written some books. We ship the books to them. It's a workbook. We have live Zoom classes and then we go through it. Um, there's there's many levels. There's three levels of grammar and then you go on to reading and, and um, you just sit with me and then you just read and learn Arabic and that's pretty much it. And, and I enjoy doing it. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to put a... Uh, put it on our website next to this podcast, the link to your to your website. But I think on that note, uh, we will wrap things up. So, Stas Faraz, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, to our audience, once again, thanks for stopping by the caravans. If you enjoyed your stay at the Caravanserai, be sure to subscribe so you will be notified when a new episode is posted. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. We hope you enjoyed your stay with us and learned something new. Once again, thanks for stopping by the Caravanserai.